or that uh, their partner isn't hearing the background track to their life <laughs> that, that is physically playing. And I think either way, there's interesting ramifications. everybody and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome to the show, everybody. We're excited to be with you for another week, another conversation about an engaging, awesome script. Before we hop into any of that, though, because we are getting real close now, we want to just take a minute to take a little bit of business, do a quick announcement, and that is that our themed month is coming up. We are but a few short weeks away from April and our themed month for season six, which we are calling Master's Month. It's, uh, you know, yeah. uh, just we, call we it were... M Month if you want. I don't care. <laughs> we'll, we'll refer you to our previous de- self-deprecating <laughs> statements about our, <laughs> listen to the last episode and the one before that. We cover our our choice we, yep, of Master's we, Month in that one. <laughs> we definitely make fun of ourselves for the choice of name, but it, it is what it is. We're going with four Greek, ancient Greek plays, two comedies, two tragedies, some great, I would say three really great scripts and a really weird one is basically what we've got in front right. of us. We wanted right. to do a weird one because there are so many and they don't ever get done because they're so stinking weird. So we were, yeah. you know, this is the chance, right? Talk about it, look into the script. So three great plays, one weird one, two comedies, two tragedies coming your way in April, Ancient Greek Plays. Yeah, yeah, get excited for it. We haven't done a whole bunch of Greek plays. I think we've done like Oedipus is the only one we've done. I think done so. Before. Yeah, and that, of yeah. course, that's the it's the cradle of theater for basically all of the Western world. So it'll be yeah. it'll be interesting to look back. Uh, well, I don't know what we'll I don't know how we'll decide to talk about those scripts. If we'll want to pull from some of the poetics, if we'll want to compare them to more modern kind of Greekish plays. Like I, I remember our discussion about the Christians really revolved mm-hmm. around its yeah. kind of tragic formatting. It'll be a fascinating month for sure. Definitely. So many plays use the tragic format of Greek plays. So yeah, look forward to that. Pay attention. It's coming soon. I think that's the that's the big announcement for today. We're, we're past the announcement stage. So now we get to the stage where we get to say this week we are we're hopping into the world of controversy, the world of excitement. Um, today's play is the play Slave Play by Jeremy O. Harris. And this play it was on our docket because it has absolutely blown the Broadway world wide open. It was on Broadway very, very recently. Uh, we'll let Jackson do that when we get to the context section. But for this, for the little introduction to the script, it's important for you to know that it, it had an incredible impact on the Broadway community, on the theater community at large for its controversy, for yeah. its exciting, uncomfortable conversations, for yeah. what it is. And it'll be, it'll be fascinating to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it's a provocative play. As we as we get into it, you will if you don't already know, you uh, will will hear some of the reasons for the controversy and and how it's happened, and also just the great conversation that it generates around around the issues of the play. So yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into it. A couple of things we want you to know before we get to that is, first of all, this is a play about race, right? It's called Slave Play. This is a play about the legacy of slavery in America in a lot of ways. This is a play about microaggressions. Um, and so, we, you know, it's important for us to say we're two white guys. We bring a particular right. perspective to the conversation we're going to have today. I hope that this is not the only perspective you hear about this play. There has been a lot of writing done about the play at large because of how impactful it has been in its Broadway run. So also go look at some of those conversations. Absolutely, especially with the play as as I'm we're, we're giving away some of my context, but I'm fine with that. As the play is <laughs> as the as the as the play has won more and more awards as it's now in the now in the cultural conversation right now. There's so many great interviews with Jeremy O'Harris with people responding to the play after having seen it. So absolutely go and check it out. They're they're high on the YouTube search results list. You won't have to look hard. So definitely take a look at those voices as well. 
We also just want to say before we hop into describing the synopsis and all that, that the play is very sexual. This might be an episode to put in earbuds so that the little ones around you don't listen to this conversation or perhaps a play conversation to skip entirely um, if conversations around sex, around trauma are going to be triggering for you. Um, please feel free to do that. You won't offend us. Truthfully, we won't even know. Go listen right. to a different episode. <laughs> Go listen to a different podcast. It's all fine. Uh, but if if this play is still interesting to you to listen to, and it's a fascinating play, just consider putting earbuds in for this one. And last amongst our, uh, before we talk about it sorts of things, uh, this is a, a play that relies heavily on a pretty surprising turn. Um, so the, 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 uh, any sort of review of the play has a spoiler alert warning. Um, and that's certainly the case for this. We're going to, we're going to spoil the whole thing. I mean, in the first 15 minutes, we're going to synopsize the whole thing for you. Yep. So if you want to preserve your experience of the play for either when you read it yourself or when you get to go see it uh, in a post COVID world, um, do so. <laughs> we exercise that right for yourself because it is it is a worthy surprise to experience without spoilers. And now with all that, let's take a brief moment to invite you over to our Patreon page before we hop into conversations around the script. As many of you know, if you are longtime listeners to this podcast, we are supported by our patrons over on Patreon. We're incredibly grateful for the folks that are supporting the work that we're doing here that are allowing us to continue doing it. We love these conversations. We love the challenge, the interesting scripts we get to read, the incredibly diverse stories. It's, a, it's an amazing experience to do the podcast, but it's not free and we're not rich. And given that both of those <laughs> things are true at the same time, we need some financial support to continue to do the podcast. Our patrons are providing that. We're grateful. If you are not yet, I'd really encourage you to go over patreon.com slash no script podcast. You can choose a tier and a tier corresponds to a monthly amount that you would choose to give through Patreon. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month. It totals $12 a year. Even that is super helpful. Even at that level, you get access to our patron only posts over on Patreon where we post about uh, whole chunks of upcoming scripts like our, our Patreon patrons have known what scripts we're talking about in theme month for a while now. Uh, that could be you. We also post about just interesting things. If we've seen a show that we have talked about on the podcast, we'll often post a kind of a thought thoughts after seeing it. Um, we'll, rec we'll point you to videos of clips, uh, other pieces of art, poetry, visual art, music that are interesting to us. So uh, you can access those posts over there. But the most important thing is that you can choose, I think, to support the work that we're doing. We love to do it, but we need your help to do it. So please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Consider supporting us over there. Yes, thank you to everyone who's already become a patron of us over there for joining the community, for helping out no script. Thank you so much. We'll see you over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. Back to the script. So uh, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for this fairly new play. It's written by Jeremy O'Harris. First time we've done a play by o by Harris on the on the podcast. Um, he's a playwright and actor. He spent some time in L.A. doing the actor thing and then went to uh, playwriting uh, school at, at Yale. He got his MFA in, in playwriting at Yale. He was the winner of the 2018 Paula Vogel Playwriting Award. And this play was written for his uh, community at Yale. He wrote it to be performed at Yale, won a bunch of uh, awards there. And then uh, pretty quickly was uh, moved to an off-Broadway production. The uh, The first production was in 2018, and it was directed by Robert O'Hara. Um, 2018, yeah, first production, I'm trying to find the theater name, uh, at the uh, New York Theater Workshop. Um, and and that began the the kind of journey of this play, it uh, or, or its Broadway journey, at least. Um, it then opened in 2019 on Broadway at the Golden Theater, uh, and... Uh, then, then you know, the world got all crazy, right? Uh, the, the theater world shut down, and so uh, the Tony Awards got delayed. So a lot of its awards were delayed for a long time, but it is now receiving tons of nominations for awards. It has 12 Tony nominations for the 2019 to 2020 season, which is going to be awarded soon. The, the Tonys yeah, they're came voting. Out. I mean, as we're recording this, perhaps this will reveal when we record things, but as we're recording it, Tony voting is happening now yeah. on the 2019-2020 season. 
Yeah, so so that's that's part of the reason why there's more recent interviews around this play and conversations around this play is is that uh, the the return of the award season and it's been nominated for just a ton of them. So uh, so that's the uh, part of the big news around it. We've mentioned the controversy around this play and the reaction of theater goers to the play as as it is a jarring experience. As we'll get into the synopsis. Um, but also, the, the, there's a lot of great conversation around accessibility with this play. Uh, Harris wanted to be sure that this was not like a $400 ticket uh, sort of show, at least not all the time. <laughs> and so there's been lots of great conversation about changing the model of ticketing, of subsidizing tickets, of buy one, get one tickets. So that's, there's ongoing conversation around it and lots of cool uh, um work being done in making sure that this play is accessible to not just the uber, uber rich of Broadway to be sure that this conversation can be had across a broad spectrum of voices. Yeah. Two kind of fun stories revolving around the context. Jeremy O'Harris, in all of his interviews, will talk about how surprised he is that this play went on to Broadway because, as you said in the context, it was really just written for his classmates at Yale. He really talks about theater as kind of community building, writing a play for a community. So he wrote this play for his classmates at Yale, and now it has really impacted the theater landscape across America. Yeah. And for all the Broadway audiences and those of us who were not part of the Broadway audience as well. Also, interestingly, the play that this play um, stole the record from for most Tony nominations for a non-musical play was the 2018 revival of Angels in America. Supposedly, Jeremy O'Harris tells the story of Tony Kushner, Angels in America. Tony Kushner came to see an early preview of Slave Play and ended up writing O'Harris a lovely, encouraging letter about the piece of work that he had done. I mean, you think about how challenging, how provocative Angels in America was back when nobody knew anything about it and, you know, when it was first out. Yeah. And that, that may be a similar kind of challenging, provocative work that you might find in Slave Play. So there's a fun, you know, O'Harris now, his play, I mean, the whole team together holds the records for the no most Tony nominations for a non-musical play, and that came after Tony Kushner's play Angels in America held that record. So there's a, a playwriting, playwright kind of connection there. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's, and I like what you're saying too about a similar sort of provocative nature to it, that you leave, you leave with conversations to be had. So that's, that's, that's cool synthesis between the two. All right, so we're going to hop into the synopsis. This is a play set on a plantation, specifically the McGregor Plantation. Uh, it's in Virginia. And the play is in three acts, and the major twist, the major turn, occurs between acts one and two. So I'm, I'm going to set up what you would see if you were seeing the play in act one, and then how it shifts into the conversations in act two. That's probably the most of the synopsis I'll provide, because after that, it really becomes interpersonal character struggles, and, and that I think will inform our conversation. So... In Act 1, we open on a woman. Uh, she is sweeping uh, uh, an overseer's hut, basically. This is a black woman uh, dressed as a slave. Her name is Kanisha, and she is sweeping the hut. And at the same time, the Rihanna's song Work is playing. She begins to dance um, in a very modern dance style, like uh, twerking and all of that, to the song. Uh, in the midst of this seemingly anachronistic setting for that piece of music. Um, she's dancing. Enter Jim, a white man, the overseer. They both speak with southern accents. Um, Jim and her have some interesting kind of back and forths revolving around their positions. He is her boss. He's there. To, uh, I mean, he's got a whip in his hand. He says he's there to beat her. And what ends up happening is that they have a very highly sexual encounter in which Kanisha asks him to refer to to her as a negress and he does he does do that at one point in the scene and then there the sort of the sexuality begins he pulls up her dress he goes down between her legs and the scene uh, the scene shifts very suddenly i told you it was highly sexual earlier yep. so just be <laughs> <Yeah>. ready <laughs> um the scene shifts to now we're inside what we would imagine is the major house on the plantation a white woman, uh, very wealthily dressed, calls in um, a black man, and he is dressed in uh, like a butler outfit, like a more wealthy kind of 
outfit. It's a suit and tie, basically. She invites him in to play some music. He plays Beethoven or Bach, I forget. And he, she says, no, 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 not that. Play what you would play out in the shack with, with your black friends, basically. Play some more rowdy, interesting music. And he does. And that kind of begins their sexual encounter. She starts to uh, initiate sex with him. He says, oh, your husband's not home. We can't do this. And she says, well, we're going to do this. And she pulls out, and again, we warned you ahead of time, she pulls out a dildo, um, which she then implies that she's going to use on him. Uh, the scene shifts again suddenly. Now we're in the barn, and there is a uh, white-appearing man who is doing manual labor of some sort, and a black man named Gary comes on, and he, because of the different positions that they are in on the farm, he's sort of in charge of of Dustin is the white-appearing man, and they have a similar thing where they kind of fight back and forth about their roles a little bit, um, their uncomfortability with their roles, perhaps. They end up actually physically fighting, wrestling, and again, we hear some music, some very modern-sounding music play. They're wrestling. It eventually also becomes fairly sexual. They strip down to very modern-looking underwear, um, and then there's a sex act initiated where Dustin, the wide-appearing man, licks the boots of Gary, uh, the black man, and Gary has an orgasm and all, then begins to cry. Uh, shift again back to uh, Jim and Kenesha. They're in the middle of the sex act. She is asking him to call her names that he apparently is uncomfortable with because he starts, he says Starbucks. He says it over and over again, and everything kind of stops. And uh, two women we have not met appear and start to talk about how what great progress they made. And we sort of learn as the act wraps up that some sort of safe word has been used um, and they're going to stop what they're calling um, fantasy play and meet back in the house to discuss. That's the end of Act 1. Act 2, we're in this sort of processing group, and I say processing with a little wink and a nudge because one of the characters has uh, yeah. <laughs> objects to the use of that word. But they're all dressed modern now. It's all the same actors that we've met before, same characters, actually, that we've met before, but they're dressed in modern garb, um, drinking coffee, using iPads, all of that. The two women that came in at the end of Act 1 are also there. And what we learn is that all of what we saw before was part of a couple's basically sex therapy um, idea that has been taking place on this plantation where um, couples where there is a black partner who's been unable to experience pleasure from their white partner have come to this sex therapy retreat and the idea that the two women propose and their names are T we're, we're going to say because that's what Patricia calls her in the play T and Patricia that we learn later on that they are also a couple themselves that they are uh, graduate students at Yale and are proposing this sort of revolutionary kind of sex therapy where role playing um, master-slave relationships from the antebellum south may help these couples to overcome whatever is preventing the black partner in the couple from receiving pleasure from their white partner. A lot of processing happens, uh, as you can imagine, as because I think a lot of us recognize the, the racism in our world. The white partners do a lot of processing first, and there is some revelation that that's sort of problematic. And T and Patricia lead then the black partners to do more processing, um, and again, processing with a wink and a nudge. Uh, and then we shift to Act 3, which is just about Jim and Kenesha. Um, and they kind of come to a resolution about the problems that have been brought up in their relationship and in the world in the previous act, which is the couple's group sort of processing scene. So those are the three acts of the play. The play does then end with a major sex act on stage between Jim and Kenesha. This is, I'll say it one more time, probably not for the last time, a highly sexual play. Um, on the back of my script, a review from The New Yorker, Vincent Cunningham, the quote is, uncomfortably funny and gruesomely sexy. Uh, Jeremy O'Harris says in his script notes that slave play is a comedy of sorts and it should be played as a comedy. So after everything you've heard, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of comedy, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations about race and the legacy of slavery in America, especially um, on black partners in, in black and white relationships. That's kind of a general sweep of the play. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so you begin to hear how this play has caused some controversy <laughs> around it. And not just controversy, but like meaningful conversation around it. Because there's big sweeping uh, moves in it. And that, that turn of the surprise in the middle really is, I mean, it's it's almost a like an alienation effect of all of a sudden people come in or are using iPads and uh, the, 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 the or anachronistic music comes in. So you have this kind of jarring experience that then warms you up to what I think, I mean, a lot of act two is the beating heart of the play where all the like really hard conversations happen in act two, which then feeds into act three. Um, but each of these, uh, these couples are in very different places and we, we, we suss that out in act two after having this, you know, very sexual first act into a very tough conversation in act two. Yeah. It's really part of what works so well in the play is Jeremy O'Harris has created a structure for these conversations where they can be continually prompted to happen because the the presentation is artificial, right? They're not just talking about their relationship or about race on the street. They're in a a, a room, this, this group couples therapy environment where the the leaders, the graduate students, T and Patricia, can prompt conversation, can prompt the things that have been hiding beneath the surface to come out verbally and be manifested in the conversations. And it it leads to some really interesting things that these characters end up saying that probably in a different scenario they would not have said. And in fact, that's sort of the movement for the couples is all these things that have been unsaid in their relationships. All these are long standing relationships are now finally coming out because they're in this sort of artificial environment where conversation can be prompted and directed and expected. And their relationships that are defined by love, which is another unique element. They're not uh, initially antagonistic necessarily, though there is something wrong in the relationship. They're, one of the partners is not able to, to experience pleasure from the other. So there's something wrong, but it is based in a relationship where where each of the parties love each other. And so they're, they're trying to engage in this conversation that's, that's really difficult, but it's coming from a place of love. We see, I think one of the couples, uh, Dustin and Gary really begin to push on that love a little bit throughout the script and kind of wonder if in fact they have fallen out of love with each other. Um, but, but, but all of them are carrying this love with them into, into the conflict. Yeah. What is going to happen to these couples whether they are going to decide to continue their relationship, whether this specific form of therapy is going to change the dynamics of their relationship, whether they are going to have their the issue solved, whatever it is. Of course, you can't really solve the issue of racism in a one-time couple session therapy, but you know whether there's going to be movement on that becomes one of the questions for that second act of the play. One of the things that is interesting about the decisions made by Jeremy O'Harris in writing the play, and, and a reviewer said this, so I'm stealing their phrasing, is the front-loading of the role-playing scenes. Rather than um, start the play in a place where the audience knows what is happening is um, role-playing consensual, role-playing therapy, um, we start the play having really no idea what's going on. What we see are sexual relationships using language and violence that if it is non-consensual, if what we're seeing is real and we have every reason to believe it is, other than, I guess, the modern music and some anachronisms that we see that give us clues, if we, ha- if we believe it's real, it, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it, it's horrible. It's very uncomfortable. We're seeing scenes from, the, from slavery, from the way that slavery led to rape and things like that. Uh, Trevor Noah did an interview with Jeremy O'Harris, and he described seeing the play in, in an audience that's mostly white out affluent people, as the Broadway audience mostly is. Of course, as we discussed in the context, Jeremy O'Harris is trying to do a lot to change that, but that is where we are now. So Trevor Noah described seeing the play himself in this audience, that kind of audience, and he was reacting 
uh, you know, really uncomfortably that he said the first act was terrible. It was one of the worst things yeah. I've ever seen on stage, not in quality, but in content, where all these white affluent older folks are laughing. And then when the play switches and it becomes an investigation of what we saw in the first act, Trevor Noah said, then I began to laugh. I began to experience the joy of the play to see things said that I felt like needed to be said. And you saw the white affluent audience around me grow more and more uncomfortable. There's sort of a role reversal in the audience, too. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the the the, the kind of turntable of of the play switching to that. So so let's let's maybe dig a little bit into the the kind of transition that happens, right? These these individual characters and how they're how they're uh, processing what is essentially a derail of the event, right? Like the the uh, uh, I, I love I love this line. The uh, or the name of the program is the Antebellum Sexual Performance Therapy. Um, and, and so they're, they're engaging in this, this, this fantasy play. And then, uh, Jim kind of throws up the flag, says Starbucks, the safe word, which apparently shuts down the whole process for everyone. And, and there's, there's mixed feelings about that, right? Like there's each, each of the couples is in a different place. Um, notably though, Gary is, is apparently after, after having orgasmed, he's crying on the ground. He doesn't stop the, the, the role play. It's Jim who stops it for everyone. Yeah, and that becomes a contentious, right, in, in the second act, that the other couples feel betrayed, sort of, and actually Kanisha feels betrayed by Jim for him using the word that ends the event. We, we learn that this is a kind of a week-long sort of retreat, and they have spent several days preparing for the day four role-playing event, that this has all been what it's leading towards, and then there's going to be several days of, well, I'll say ruminating, because that's the play on words they use when they object to the word processing, several days of ruminating afterwards, but that this is the day that's supposed to be, uh, they, in fact, they say that where the black people are supposed to be in charge, they get to define kind of the parameters for what happens in the role-play session, and Jim, the white man, becomes so uncomfortable with what is happening that he ends the event early for everyone. Yeah, one of the big, uh, um, eventually, Kanisha spends a lot of that act kind of like bringing out her feelings and being able to articulate her feelings. But one of the things she eventually articulates is her frustration and anger that even in this scenario that uh, they signed up for for her, like she brought this thing to Jim, even in this scenario, Jim reasserts control over it by saying he's not comfortable with it. Um, and, and, and you, that, that's, that's sussed out. You mentioned in the, in, in the synopsis about how all the white characters are the ones who respond first. Like they're the ones who are trying to still assert control in this and, and slowly throughout the second act that begins to be broken down. It's, it's, it's actually like, it is a really, like, it is a very comedic play, but it's also a decently run group session. <laughs> <laughs> like mod moderate. That's funny because I think Jeremy O'Harris is making fun of Tia and Patricia in the way they Absolutely. run the session. <laughs> yeah. But like, like there's what? this great comedic <laughs> moment where they've they've kind of unpacked a little bit in, in this act two, and I forget which one of them, Tia Patricia says, uh, you know, we want you to respond now. We want to listen to you. So you please tell us what did you feel about what just happened, these sexual fantasy role-playing events. And there's just silence. <laughs> yeah, crickets. And so... It go, that silence goes on, and I think it's T, takes a Kleenex box and walks to the middle of the room <laughs> and sets it down and goes and sits back down, and then there's silence. <laughs> that is a bit, that's very funny. That is, yeah. that is, that's high-level comic satire writing. Right. Very, very funny and also very real. Like, that, 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 oh, that yeah. kind of gap where, like, no one's like, I'm not talking first. Uh, so, so yeah. That, but, but throughout it, right, we get... Um, like one of the big one of the big moves is they in in another of the kind of funny clinical lines they're saying we're saving our aggression till later yeah um, <laughs> and but eventually they do like uh, in in kind of a it, it or or I think it's Gary who starts to have some uh, anger in the room and he 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 outbursts first and then I think it's Patricia who says okay let's move into aggression um, yeah let's but, speak together aggressively now you or like at one point everybody's getting really upset and so they like they have this method for for calming down from that where they ask everybody to stand up and they bend over and like <laughs> yeah. scream between their legs and it's like okay who feels better now and just like a few of them raise their hands <laughs> 
Yeah, but that is one of the, the I mean, in, in terms of that couple of Dustin and Gary, that is one of the breakthrough moments for them is this, or breakthrough, I guess, but something happens, something moves in their relationship. Um, yeah, well, and, then, and the other thing that happens, I, I we have kind of described that the major twist is at the end of one into act two, where we move from believing we're seeing a scene from the deep South slavery. And we're actually seeing, uh, this fantasy play thing, couples sexual retreat session from now, you know, that, that is a major shift and a major turn in the play, but there actually is another one that happens later in act two, where T and Patricia revealed to the group what they're actually studying. I mean, the audience is along for that ride, too. We we believe, because this is all we've been told at the beginning of Act 2, that this is just a retreat for black partners who are struggling to to, to experience pleasure from their white partners, and this role-playing thing is going to help them get over it. And T and Patricia reveal that actually this is a study into how the legacy of racism has embedded itself in the psyche of both black people and white people, and that this has created diagnosable, they have a name for it, a specific kind of trauma and anxiety which exists in black partners they they you know they we, they all thought they there's sort of two clinical terms that they use everybody knew that they were here to deal with and I'm bad at pronunciation but I'll call it anhedonia right which is this inability to get pleasure it's often associated with depression in this case sexual pleasure and T and Patricia revealed that they're actually there in part to study alexithemia which is the inability to express your own emotions, your own sense of self because of your relationship with other. And Jeremy O'Harris actually talks about part of what he has written this play for is the to, to put words and experience to what he calls the psychic terror of being around white people by black people, right? We talked about how he wrote it for his classmates at Yale, right? He says he wrote it for these, these kids who said that they felt gaslit by institutions and by white people who said, we're not racist, but they're saying, I, I am experiencing the racism. So am I crazy? Am I wrong? What the heck is going on? And so he wrote this play in part to ex- to examine that experience. Right, right. The 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 like branch of and I'm bad at pronouncing things sometimes too. Alexithemia um, is that they're that they're working with. I think is what they're naming racialized inhibiting disorder. And so the the uh, or RID is how it's uh, abbreviated through through the rest of the play after that moment. So so yeah, they're they're kind of with with this experiment with these parties who are trying to figure out why they're they're not feeling uh, good about their partnership anymore. Um, they're 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 like diving in on that, pushing on that a little bit, and then and then trying to through role play through these situations. Um, that are not anachronistic. We should get to that at some point. To to the characters, the characters are engaging in what they feel is a pretty honest role play. Um, but uh, they, yeah, they're trying to they're trying to suss that out, bring it into light, and kind of knock loose some of the the blocks in these characters. Yeah, and so what happens in that act two is that in the first, let's call it half of act two, m- mostly who is doing the processing, the ruminating. Uh, is the the white partners in these groups, right? Dustin says, um, you know, I'm not actually white. I, I'm, I'm, you know, what he he doesn't really put a name to it, uh, and his partner actually challenges him on that. But he says, I'm not white, and I'm being asked to play a white person in this role, and that makes me really uncomfortable. And you, Gary, got so into it, and then you had an orgasm, and you were crying, it looked like you were having a panic attack. I don't know what to do. And uh, uh, Alana, the white partner to Philip, uh, sh- they did the the house scene. Where with the violin, um, she says, this was so great. It was so sexually awesome. I can't believe we had to stop early. What the heck is going on there? I've never been able to express what I want and need better. And it was good for Philip too, by the way, right, Philip? And he's like, oh, sure, yeah, okay. Um, right, Philip's and, a little ambivalent for, yeah, for that middle part. Yeah, and then Jim expresses, of course, because he's the one who stopped it, he has these deep-seated uncomfortabilities and frustrations with the whole process. He says things like, this is insane. You're lighting fires where there weren't any. You're asking me to call the partner who who I love. He calls her his queen. I'm supposed to call her a negress. I'm supposed to say all of these terrible things. It's terrible. And then comes this reveal where T and Patricia say, so actually what we've been studying is what just happened. 
where the white partners can bring all of their feelings, can fully articulate what they feel, how complicated it is in relationship to their partners, but their black partners can't. And so now they start to push the black partners to more fully explore their experience, both of the role play and the couple's therapy session. And that becomes kind of the way that these relationships change direction. Yeah, and that's kind of where you see Kanisha as a character begin to um, kind of fill a larger role for the play. Um, uh, the last scene is between just Kanisha and Jim, and is 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 primarily Kanisha talking. But she like uh, she she begins to really start to suss out some of these feelings of repression that she's felt in her relationship as she's articulating the feelings more and more begins to come. One of the big uh, kind of revelations she has is around this term of a virus um, and, and how, how Jim and how English, especially he's Jim is English. I think we forgot to mention that, but he, that's true. Yeah. Th- they all use Southern accents in acts one, act one. And then when the role play stops, they go back to their original accents. Kanisha is from the South. Everybody else is not. So they just have regional accents of all kinds. And Jim is English, not American. And that is, that's incredibly important for what I'm sure you're about to say. Yeah. It's fairly important in that, like that the, uh, she she is able to articulate that the coming of English to America, the way the English enslaved people in America, um, is is a virus that continues to have effect. This unspoken thing that's underneath their relationship that cannot uh, be uh, that maybe could be overcome, but has not been named, and thus can't be overcome um, until it is named. And she has said that you know th- this is a revelation for her in this moment of the play, partially just because Jim is English and not American. And the accent, the, you know, he's not an American white, he's an English white. Maybe he's absolved of the sins of whiteness or, or, or whatever she's experiencing. And the revelation for her is that that's not true. We have to, to name and articulate the power structures that surround us and that infiltrate even in our relationship for our relationship to have a chance to go forward. The play is a masterwork of using two of those crucial tools of playwriting and all storytelling, revelation and reversal. I mean, the number of times where characters have incredible personal and social revelations about themselves, their roles, the directions their lives are heading, it's masterful. It defines the plot. And at the same time, reversals happen all the time, right? Reversals of power. You see Jim and Kanisha in that act one, and he is playing the overseer role, and she is playing the slave role. And we reversal, we realize that she is the one that has been in charge of that encounter, and she has been asking things of him that he's uh, not doesn't feel comfortable to give. And then we learn that this all part of a power structure structure in society of yeah. white people. Have. I mean, it's it's incredible the way he reverses power and character orientations and roles. I, I recognize that for a lot of people, the sexual content of the play and also the, the what happens in the role playing makes it an uncomfortable play to read and experience. So I don't know what life it might have in playwriting classes, but to look at it as a textbook on using reversal and recognition scenes to define a plot it is incredibly good at that. Definitely. One of one of the, the kind of revelations that we get as an audience that is still sticking with me is that the music is not experienced yeah. by all the characters. Well, and I still, <laughs> I think I'm still sort of torn. The, yeah. <laughs> some people say it's not, but then it's like, did T and Patricia play it in a in a weird reverby way? Like in a, yeah, yeah, using yeah. Using directional speakers or something? Like, I wouldn't be shocked if O'Harris had an interview later on. He was like, you didn't get that? No, they've been playing the music really specifically. But let's talk about the music because that becomes part of the characters' journeys as they discover about themselves and what this the RID uh, has racially, I think it's racial inhibiting disorder or something like that, that T and Patricia propose is the source of so much of what's going on. That, yeah. that as they discover that about themselves and, and make changes, music meta, kind of metaphorically represents that, right? Right. Well, well, what what they're told is that, or is well, they hear. I guess let's start. Let's start before that. They hear music, especially Kanisha and Gary hear a particular type of music. They in, hear it, and Philip plays it. So it it is right. You know, it's a pretty big deal in each of the three fantasy scenes. But if in Philip, because he's a musician, he plays his. It's like an OCD music. It's like a, yeah, thing, it's right? a track. 
Yeah, something something that is kind of constantly playing in the background of your head. Um, the as they begin to realize um, that that it's happening to them, but the there there are. I'm going to start that over a little bit. Kanisha is saying that she uh, has. Uh, is hearing work going on, Rihanna's work in the background. Um, as you mentioned, Gary is is hearing, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the song, but he's, he's hearing a, a song playing in the background. I think it's multi-love. Multi-love, thank you. But uh, Dustin says there was no song playing in, in, in the scene. So you begin to kind of take apart the, uh, the possibility that either um, it's playing in their heads and is this kind of uh, background track to their life that only they're hearing, but that manifests itself as a real thing for them, or that uh, their partner isn't hearing the background track to their life <laughs> that that is physically playing. And I think either way, there's interesting ramifications, um, both in the 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 uh, kind of narrative that they're forming for themselves if it is an internal song, or in the uh, selective blanking out that their partners are doing. And T and Patricia propose that the music that they hear on repeat, you know, for each of the three characters, it's Rihanna's work, it's multi-love, and it's it's Beethoven, a specific symphony, um, that the music that they hear on repeat is related to the RID, the symptoms of which they propose might be panic attacks, which we experience, anxiety, depression, uh, anhedonia, the inability to feel pleasure, but also... OCD, basically, that this has caused sort of manifested an OCD in the three black partners. And um, then Kanisha kind of further goes on to describe that um, when you're engaged in strenuous mental exercise, OCD symptoms tend to diminish, or at least she proposes that. And so the music becomes sort of representative of the symptoms that they are experiencing. And when they're engaged in the strenuous mental exercise of the fantasy play, that music diminishes. And it somehow then it it becomes part of the storytelling and what happens between Jim and Kanisha in Act 3. Well, because just because I just said it and thought of it, I, I do want to recognize, too, um, that the title of the play is a play on words in itself, right? There's uh, slave play, right, which could just be a, a play about slaves or a play about slavery, a play. But then there's also play in the sense of fantasy play, right? Um, like you might say r rope play or something, and it's referring to a specific like sexual fetish kind of thing, a sexual experience. So slave play would be like role-playing slaves in a sexual way. So he, he has an incredible, I think, duplicity in the, the title, which represents a lot of the experience. Well, yeah, it's a it's a it's a kind of beautifully hidden double entendre because this play is coming out, you know, around around the time that we're having conversations. It's after the movie Twelve Years a Slave, and and the conversations around art that is produced in theater and on movies in movies um, is why why are we always doing slave plays <laughs> or slave movies? Um, why why are we not allowing a different narrative to be told? And that's the kind of conversation that Jeremy O'Harris writes into and kind of says, "Well, I'm I'm going to do another slave play." Um, but, but then he works in that double entendre that also says it's not just that though. Like it's like, there's, there's a lot more to this that we're, that we're talking about. Um, and, and I think, I think that's the kind of fascinating part of that, that bringing in the fantasy play or the role play aspect to it too. You begin to, it, it talks to the, the, uh, the surprise turn as well. You spend the first part of the play thinking it's a slave play and then you switch on scene two and start and start reeling it's a fantasy or a, a you, fantasy you think play. it's a you think it's a slave play and then you realize it's actually just slave play <laughs> right, <laughs> not right, a slave yeah. play it's slave play right it's, right it's, it's yeah the sexual fantasy of it all and so then you you end up with kind of these multifaceted character journeys i mean at the center of the play is jim and kanisha they start the play we they're the first sexual fantasy that we see played out um that interestingly they they kind of take a little bit of a backseat role in the second act until the very end partially just to allow dustin and gary and philip and alana to have a more full character journey in act two because they don't get act three then all of act three is the culmination of the jim and kanisha storyline but what I mean by the multi-levels is there's the level of the group's journey through the couple session. There's the level of the couples' journey 
through this, uh, this antebellum uh, sexual therapy. And then there's the individual journeys inside those partnerships through right. this experience of the play. Yeah, the the and and it forces you to ask like three tiers of questions, right? You have a systematic question that you're asking about this whole structure that that is being presented about these disorders and about this type of therapy. So you're asking compelling questions about that and its efficacy and its the good conversations that it evokes. You have you have the tension between the couples, right? Uh, I, I, the tension between Jim and Kanisha over control. The tension between Philip and Alana and Philip's ability to express himself in their relationship. Um, and you have Dustin Gary, which eventually you start asking questions of, boy, are we are we able to keep this relationship going? And then and then inside of each of those, you're on a character arc with each of these characters. And and I, I think that's true. I don't think I'm just like generalizing that. Each of these characters have an arc that they go on. You watch uh, Kanisha slowly be able to bring out her, or bring or articulate her feelings in a way that's different for her. We learn that she's a writer. We know that she can write feelings for characters, but she's able to articulate her own. You have Jim, who enters into this space as, as a pretty talkative character on a journey to being a listening character. And that, that continues for each of these groups as they, they engage this conflict, they find out their own little arcs that they're on, um, just in, even, even within the context of that one short act. Yeah, and you can see how Jeremy O'Hara sets up some of that inside the fantasy play act when we don't even really know what's going on, and it pays off incredibly well later. You notice a lot more of that on a second read-through, third read-through, a second watching of the play, whatever. For example, um, when Jim comes in for the first time as the overseer character, he sees uh, Kanisha dancing to Rihanna's work, and that begins a little discussion about dancing, and, and in playing the character, he, he asks sort of the gruff, uh, you know, s slavery archetype sort of question, didn't they beat the dancing out of you when they brought you from Africa and all that. And Kanisha goes on a very, uh, really well-written monologue about holding on to the music of the bodies and things like that. But this has come just after Jim, again, trying to play the Oversea character, but clearly not playing it very well, has asked Kanisha not to call him Master, to call him Mr. instead, because Master makes him uncomfortable. So they've just had that discussion. And then Kanisha gives this long, gorgeously written monologue about dance and the legacy of it and holding onto it in their bodies through oppression and all of this and just after that monologue jim just says so the reason i don't want you to call me master is that it makes me really uncomfortable yeah. right? he hasn't been listening to her mm -hmm. he's only been listening to how that conversation relates to him what she's calling him is the only thing on his mind and yeah. you see little micro especially microaggression couple issues like that get brought into balloon proportion in that act two by the structure of the therapy session, by the prompting of T and Patricia. And then the other two couples have a chance to sort of give us an indication where they're headed. And then Jim and Kanisha get the chance to more fully complete that journey, literally completed in some ways, in Act right. 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we get to see it, we, or they show us the completion of the journey um, through, through Act and 3. And the completion a... of the sex act. Let's right. just acknowledge that the play ends with them having sex on stage, um, and it, it's, it's in the overseer slave roles that Kanisha has been indicating she wants. And really through that whole act, what has been happening is that Kanisha has been monologuing about the recognition of Jim's whiteness and what it is doing to her in their relationship and the legacy of racism and how that has impacted her and how the failure to acknowledge it has amplified her symptoms of OCD. She says that pretty explicitly. All the while, Jim is like sucking on her fingers, taking off her shirt, and then it ends with this the sex act that Kanisha has asked for uh, from the beginning of the play in the more fully acted, more fully lived into roles of the overseer and the slave, including threatening of beating, calling her whatever she wanted him to call her. And then at the very end of that, they sort of collapse together and the play ends with her saying, thank you for listening to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, it's it's definitely a it's a switch in the format of the play. It's a switch in the characters. It's a it's a yeah. It's the it's the you see an arc to the character. I mean, there's like I, I I'm just gonna 
guess at the number of pages. I think there's 10 to 12 pages of monologue for Kanisha in the in this last act. So she she is finally able to articulate. Jim shuts up and lets her articulate and then also just gives her the control of their relationship for for that last scene. I also wanted to bring up the the way you laid out that first scene. This this play is really different on a second time through, on a second uh, watch through, on a second read through. Um it there but it's but it's not it's not just it's not just reliant on the surprise I don't think. I don't think this is a play that is diminished in its second watch, which is unique for surprise plays, right? A lot of pl- plays depend so heavily on that surprise moment. Um and it and it will and it, it flavors the whole show. I think a second watch of this, you're you're you'll you'll be picking up things like what Jacob said about about how these characters are in the throes of their dysfunction. Jim not listening to this this monologue from Kanisha and and wanting to further clarify himself and further be sure that his position is known on this, even even as they're uh, engaging in this fantasy play. Well, yeah, right, and and that's kind of one of the discussions and disagreements that have been had about the play in its life in terms of reviewers and conversation. We've said several times that it's controversial. It's it's controversial for the the brazenness of the sex that's displayed on stage. It's controversial for the the fact that we watch uh, black humans get called the N word and and you know threatened to be beaten and you know in the world of the fantasy play raped on stage, so there's that controversy part of it. But then there's also just the controversy of disagreement of opinions, and many different reviewers have a broad spectrum of different opinions on how important it is that the the fantasy play is a surprise. Right, At the beginning of the conversation, I used the term front loading the role play from from a one of the reviewers and the the thought is well what what if we didn't have to believe that this horrible reality of slavery and and rape and and the way that sex integrated itself into the master slave relationships what if we didn't have to believe that that was what was happening on stage right away and we could know it was a couples therapy session and then would that give us a chance to better understand what was going on and hmm. that is the experience you have on a second time, third time, fourth time through the play or a second watch, third, fourth watch through the play. When the surprise is taken out, do you have a better grasp of what O'Harris is doing and the commentary he's making? And reviewers across the spectrum disagree on that. And that's part of what's made it such a fascinating play. Right, right. The the I mean, uh, the the jarringness of the first act. I think I, I mentioned alienation early on. I think that I I mean, I'll I'll pick a side. I think that is such an important part of the first watch of a play. I think of this play. I think that that is the the thing that punches you in the gut that then makes your reception to the second act and the third act that much more available. Um, you're not you're not sitting in a place of comfort, probably. You're sitting in a place of very stirred up emotions, conflicting emotions, and you kind of enter the therapy session with the act or with the characters. You get to go into the therapy session too. You get your avatars in the conversation. You can put yourself into the roles only by virtue of being very un comfortable um after the first act of the play and it it's a it's a theatrical choice too because as you do with any story but then in this story it becomes so crucially important O'Harris has to choose where to start us on the journey right he could have started us the day before in the middle of watching movies about the antebellum south about slavery so that we understood but he chose us to start chooses not chooses chooses chose <laughs> to start the audience in the point of the play where we would not have the same level of knowledge as the characters right it's sort of the opposite of dramatic irony is the beginning of the play he get, he infuses the characters with much more knowledge about the world around them than we have and we end up playing catch up and by playing catch up i think we are more invested in the backwards looking um uh, uncovering and examination and parsing of what happened in that act one. However, I think it's also worth recognizing that because we don't know that the incredibly traumatic things we're experiencing on the stage in act one are consensual fantasy play that can make them all the more traumatic and triggering and could potentially put some audience people and some reviewers have said this was their experience, make them really unable to engage with the conversation in the second part of the play because of the 
really painful experience of the first section of the play. If you don't know it's a consensual fantasy play, then it looks like rape. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if, if it, if it triggers the audience to the extent that they disassociate, like there's, there's a difference between alienation and disassociation and, and there is a real danger. I think you're, you're right in bringing it up of, of this kind of disassociative effect, whether from uh, experienced trauma or, or systematic trauma, um, that, that echoes in this, in this first part of the play that, that, that is a real danger. And it's, and, and I think that's, that's part of why this play continues to get talked about. Um, part of why it's, it is like, Play should invoke this sort of conversation, right? You should yeah, like be able... reviewers often will use the word like dangerous and necessary. That's a very common phrase you see, or something like that, right? The play is bold and it does things that make you talk about it and disagree with it and, and want to think about it more and that challenge this the status quo of theater and race relations and all of those things. And all of that conversation is necessary, but it doesn't make the piece less compelling or provocative. We're getting close to the end of our time on on that. We always run out of time on these yeah. <laughs> podcasts and any in any play that we're doing. But I wanted to bring up one one other kind of important uh, uh, theme in the play, which is that a lot of the characters are trying to work through the hard work of figuring out what color they identify as or what what color of skin they identify with. I'm just going to read a couple of the character descriptions yeah, that are given great. to us. Um, uh, the character description of Kanisha is a dark black woman, unafraid of what she knows she wants, 28. Um, Philip, a mulatto who still has to learn his color, 30. Gary, a dark black man whose life has been lived with the full trauma of his color, 27. Dustin, a white man, but the lowest type of white, dingy, an off-white, 28. So, so you get the sense of the type of characters that Harris is writing for us. Um, these are the characters that are are in the throes of dealing with colorism and trying to find their and identity within just, that. Yeah, identity too, right? It's yeah. Like, well, who am I and where am I on the intersection of, of race and my life? And a character like Dustin, who says, I'm not white, that's... That that ident that self-identifying gets challenged, and they say, "Well, are you white in context of your relationship? In context of how people see you?" That becomes part of the conversation. Here's a note from Jeremy O'Harris's um, notes on the script early before the play. He says, "This is a play about shades, colors, as much as it's about race. Color play, shade play should be of interest to those casting this piece." There's just a there's a whole realm of the conversation that's not just like there are black people and white people, but also how all of the shades within impact the conversation too and, and impact those specific people and their ability to know who they are and identify who they are and how that relates to these you know incredibly integrated power structures that surround romance and sex and, and business and, and all of that kind of stuff. Well, that speaks again to the 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 multi the, the multitude of arcs that we're experiencing, right? We, that we talked about earlier. The individual arcs of these characters are still so rich. We've mentioned Dustin before, and how Dustin is is really uh, pretty upset at being asked to play the white character in their role play. Um, he's he's an actor though, so he's done it so that so because Gary asked him to do it, and so there's all sorts of interesting uh, conflict in him around around this and and the role he's being asked to play. Well, I've, I, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating part of the conversation. I think we probably need to not talk too much about it. We're running out of time here, and, and it's regretful because it's, it's an incredible part of the play. But also, we're two white guys, and there are just some things that we should let people who know a lot more about it and have lived it a lot more than us speak about. It. So really encourage you to head out and check out other conversations of the play where that piece of what the play is about is going to be more fully fleshed out. I just want to mention one more kind of fun thing. It's not really a subject of conversation because the truth is I don't, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I know noticed it as I was reading the play. The, the title of Act 3 is um, Exercise. This is a, a three-act play. And there is another famous three-act play where pretending games are part of the play that is also has a third act called 
The Exorcism, one of the more famous plays in all of Western literature, Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I don't know if that's an intentional reference by O'Hara to, or by O'Harris, I'm sorry, to the to the third act. And I keep saying O'Harris like it's O apostrophe Harris. It's not. It, o is his middle name. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. By Harris. Uh, I don't know if that's an intentional reference to Albie's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or not, but I couldn't help but think about it as I read it. I was like, act three, exercise. Isn't that what Albie's play act three is called? <laughs> I just thought it's a fun connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The- theater history connection. Yeah, definitely. So at, at as, as we've said, there's so much more in this play to talk about. We could spend hours and hours talking about it, and we'd like to. We'd like to continue this conversation, and we can by virtue of the power of the internet. So, if you would like to continue having conversations about this play with us, with uh, all the NoScript community, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at Podcast. You can comment on the link that you clicked on to get here, or however that works for you. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about slave play with you yeah and if you like this episode or any of our other episodes please go ahead and recommend the podcast to your friends and families we're in an awesome position where we watch our listenership grow and grow as the podcast goes on we know that that's largely because of you all we don't like spend a bunch of money to run ads or anything that's you telling people about the podcast then them discovering the podcast so thank you for that please keep sending them our way we're hosted on podbean you can find us there there's like a podbean app player you can use if you want but we're also on spotify apple Podcasts, google play all those places you can connect with us on facebook and we post just a link to the new episodes you can just click and listen for your less technologically savvy friends and family that might be an easy way to find us too Thank you for joining us for this episode. Again, uh, Master's Month, where we're going to talk about four Greek plays, is coming up. We're excited about that. And until next time, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script, the podcast. Bye-bye.